so today is uh, Father's Day. It just, uh, you know, I know a lot of people just, we're a newer church, so I'm not doing a Father's Day sermon. We're just going to keep preaching because we believe that the Bible addresses uh, dads, moms. Oh, the math, okay. So, uh, Solange, come in. Uh, where's Tim and Caitlin? We just, we were just praying for you. Now you know who they are. Caitlin and Tim, raise your hand. Okay, good. Yes, they're going on. I mean, you did it to yourself, Tim. I mean, okay, so anyways, they're going to be going with Amanda, they're going to be headed to Costa Rica, so just so you have faces with names to pray for them uh, as they leave by God's grace. So, okay, now, getting back to uh, Father's Day, um, you know, we we do that because uh, the reason we don't just preach kind of, you know, Father's Day, Mother's Day uh, sermons is because you also never know where people land. Father's Day isn't a cheery day for everybody, Mother's Day isn't a cheery day for everybody. Some people grew up fatherless, motherless, Uh, some people had abusive homes where the last thing they want to consider or think of is a parent. So we want always our eyes to be pointed to the the perfect father, the one who shepherds his family in ways that our earthly moms and dads could never shepherd us, which is found in Jesus alone, uh, that he is our good shepherd. He's the one who pastors us perfectly, uh, who loves us perfectly, who disciplines us perfectly. And so um, I also don't want to neglect uh, showing honor, though, to uh, the dads here, just praying for you. Because, and here's why, I've said this since day one, um, we believe that, that God has organized and structured the home in such a way that that dads are to lead their homes courageously, selflessly, sacrificially, where they die to their own interests for the good of the family, the good of the home. We live in a culture where it says, men, do what you want, uh, kind of just be demeaning, lord over people, you deserve whatever you can have. Uh, the Bible says very differently that women are put in our care to love and cherish as Christ loves his church. That's insane. So uh, if you just read text about what that looks like, that's very sacrificial, that's very gentle, that's very honoring, and so we want to pray that God raises up men in here that could overflow and raise up other men as sons who will do the same uh, so that our homes can look like God intends the home to look like. So um, if you are a father uh, in this room, if you could just stand, and we want to pray over you and for you so you can stand up. If you're, a, if you're a, there we go, okay, and if you are near them, if you are a, particularly a wife to this dad, if you could just put your hand on them uh, as we pray for them, and uh, as we pray for maybe even up, if, if you're an upcoming father too, you can stand right because your child is, is living as now, even in the womb. So uh, let's pray for them, and then we'll uh, ask God to work this morning. God, thank you for these men. God, thank you for the future men that will be a part of this church who will be called fathers. God, we pray that you would make us men who love our homes, who uh, create a fresh breeze in the home, that we are not a burden to our children, that we are not in uh, agony to them, that we don't provoke them, but God, that we lovingly and graciously care for them. I pray that the wives of these men would feel cherished and loved and built up, that they would flourish in the home because these men are their husbands. God, we pray for those this morning who are deeply wounded by their fathers. God, we pray that they would see the God who's a father to the fatherless. That God, you are a dad who loves them, cares for them, gave yourself for them. God, may they push their hearts deeply into yours. God, we pray for those also who maybe have lost a father, who just missed their dad today. That God, you'd comfort them, that you'd remind them that you never leave, you never wander, you never forsake them, that they consistently always have you to depend on as their earthly father in moments of grief, moments of sorrow. And God, we pray as we look at the text this morning that you'd speak to us. We need the Holy Spirit. There's nothing I can do to make us understand anything. God, if the Holy Spirit doesn't work, 
So give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, man. Thank you very much. Okay, so uh, if you have a Bible, grab it. Go to Luke chapter 3. Uh, we are finally hitting, uh, I think, some of the good meat, the exciting steps that Luke's going to lay out for us in Luke chapter 3. Um, and we're going to start with John the Baptist's ministry this morning. That's what we're going to see here. Uh, as John the Baptist is the forerunner to the Messiah. And just to kind of catch you up to speed as you're turning to Luke chapter 3, here is what has happened, is is God has kind of laid out in the scriptures, if you look from Genesis 1 all the way to the end, he's got this story of redemption. So he's got this, this idea happening where he sees the world that is stained with sin, sick with sin, there's fracture, there's injustice, there's everything went wrong when sin entered the world in Genesis 3. He made all good, all was pleasing to him, and, and when sin entered, it just shipwrecked the whole thing. So he has a plan to make new and, and reform and recreate a, a new earth, a new world where, where God will reign ultimately with his people, where there will be utter perfection. And we're kind of in the, the middle stage with the already not yet, where he is offering Christ to those who are stained with sin, who are helpless and hopeless and broken intrinsically apart from the saving work of Jesus, that, that we love to be our own God, we love to control our own things, we love to belittle his name, maybe not intentionally but unintentionally, and he came in grace and mercy and bore our sin for us on the cross, that he killed it in the ground, in the grave, rose again saying, I'm victorious over it, rises and gifts his Holy Spirit to those who repent of their sin, which means they, they turn from their sin in their heart and their mind to Christ, the Savior who is the one who can fully cancel the debt and give him that righteousness and then, and then walk and live in light of who he is. And so we're going to see this morning that very theme of repentance. That's going to be a key idea here as he begins to unfold the history of redemption, how the Old Testament people of God were longing for a redeemer. They really wanted someone to come to deliver them from not only physical oppression but from sickness of sin and, and they were awaiting this Messiah. They were awaiting this deliverer and it's beautiful because John is finally here. He's the one who came from John from uh, the prophecy from the uh, angel Gabriel to Zechariah and Elizabeth who were old in age, barren, and God does a miracle there in providing them a son. And this is John, and he is paving the way for the Messiah, okay? He's paving the way for this Redeemer. So what he's going to preach is pretty important because he's preparing people, not just then, but even our hearts, for this Jesus who is rescuer and redeemer. And here's what you're going to just fundamentally see, as, as simple as I can get it, is we're going to see John the Baptist say some pretty hard things, and then he's going to call it good news, and we're going to see why it's good news. Does that make sense? So you're just going to, listen, he preaches, probably if you think there's such thing as a seeker-sensitive sermon, hey, this is it for you, but it's not, okay? So I'm just, we want to see in the scriptures that these, these sermons men preach. So that, that idea of being seeker-sensitive is, is lost, okay? You won't find it in the scriptures, okay? Being seeker-sensitive is actually doing what John's doing, which is in greatest love laying before you truth because truth will free you. Truth is for your joy, not for your bondage, not for your enslavement. So we know the most loving thing he can do is just be raw and honest. So that's what we want to do as preachers and pastors, even as Christians, is just be raw and honest about what's true, right? We don't have to fear truth don't have to be afraid of what the bible says because we know it's for our joy god is not after you kind of begrudgingly loving him submitting to him because you have to okay there's this weird idea that that gospel presentations are hey mommy and daddy are going to heaven you want to go to heaven too right not hell well yeah okay so just say this say this prayer that's that's weird that's not biblical that's not what the bible says it's not i'll escape hell to be with him it's he's so good to me Man, he offers forgiveness, he offers mercy, he offers me a new adopted family, he offers me his own righteousness, he pays my debt, that's good news. 
So we're going to see that this morning. Chapter 1 of Luke, chapter 3 says this, as there's a lot of words I won't pronounce right, so just listen and and ignore it. Uh, If you say it fast, it sounds like you're educated. In the 15th year, in the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Anna, Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Okay, here's what Luke is simply doing, okay, just to save you the full historical lesson. He is giving you all the prominent leaders, local, state, national, religious, and here's where he wants you to track. Because remember, Luke is concerned about history. Okay, he's not giving you random dates, random people, random facts. Okay, so if you track this history all the way back here in A.D. 29. A.D. 29 is the year right before Jesus' official ministry. So this is within. John the Baptist is showing up anywhere from one month to 12 months of Jesus' ministry. Okay, so he's about to enact, basically pave the way, prepare people for Jesus who will come and begin his public ministry. And he says right there, the word of the Lord came to John. Okay, already we're seeing a miraculous fulfillment of what? The promise that the angel made to uh, Zechariah and to Elizabeth that this child would come and be the preparer of the Messiah. Now, anytime the God of the universe wants to say something to a nation, to a government, to a people, he sends a prophet. Okay, in this case, he's sending John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is coming. The word of the Lord is coming to him. This is all being enacted. And in verse 3, here's where it picks up. And he went into the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This is Isaiah 40, if you're wondering. He's just quoting what Isaiah has already said, already prophesied, already already saying what's going to happen. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Okay, so one of the first things out of the mouth of John the Baptist, he could have said anything, is this word repent. That's the first thing he comes acknowledging is repent for the forgiveness of sins. And this is going to be a key idea we're going to unpack through the rest of the section of Scripture. And Luke says he's preaching repentance for forgiveness of sins. So right out of the gate, here's what John does for you and for me and for these people. He lays before you, one, the problem, sin, the solution, repentance, okay? So that's very simple. So he's showing you, okay, sin's clearly an issue, the belittlement of God, us worshiping other gods outside of him, us not wanting to live for him, submit to him, enjoy him. So that's sin, right? Fundamentally breaking his moral law, his natural law, everything that falls under that. And then he says, here's the key, repentance. Now, Very quickly, we're going to see repentance be talked about, but here's what repentance is. Repentance is, like I said a few minutes ago, it's two words, metaneo, just one's the mind, one's the heart. So it's these two actions happening in you. It's not just emotionally saying, I want God. It's you in your mind saying, I understand this. I understand why he's good. You're turning away from sin and turning towards Christ. You want him. You're not just running away from sin. 
Okay, you just keep running away from sin. That's just a sin manager. That's just someone who likes avoiding sins and kind of keeping them at bay. No, you got to run to someone who's holy. you got to pursue someone else, not just run from something. So that's repentance, a 180 turning away from your sin and running towards the Redeemer, Savior of your soul. And he says, as we do this, for in, in some way, there will be forgiveness. Okay, your sin will be blotted out. Your sin will be forgiven. And the reason he says baptism that there's this is because baptism symbolically demonstrates repentance. You dying to yourself and you being raised a new life in Christ. That's why when you see people go under the water, that's symbolizing their, their death to their old self, that Jesus died for them. And then when they come out of the water, that's symbolizing newness of life. We have a new nature. We have a new spirit. He gifts us his Holy Spirit. That's why one of the first things Jesus commands is that you'll be baptized once you repent of your sin. Right? In obedience. In, in symbolically demonstrating what repentance is. And it's important John is preparing people for a savior. It says salvation's at hand. Why does that matter? Because you've got to tell people what they need to be saved from for them to want a savior. I always say people have to be lost before they can be found. Okay, so if you don't tell people bad news, they don't know that good news invades bad spaces. There's no reason they're going to say, oh, I want that. When you go to the doctor, if everything's good, why do you want any medicine? Right? But if someone says, hey, you're ill, you've got this, you've got this, man, you want to know the remedy. You don't know how to be fixed. You don't know how to be made whole. So, so he's laying before us, hey, sin is an ache, it's an illness, and this idea of repentance, which will be ultimately satisfied when we repent in the one who takes our illness, becomes it for us, becomes our curse, and bears it on the cross out of love and out of grace. And this is why he quotes Isaiah 40, because he's demonstrating what God is fulfilling in his promise namely through the person and work of Jesus, and that will be enacted through repentance. So what's going to happen in the salvation of God is the, the low places that are sick with sin. He's going to fill them. Those who are humble and low and understand that they need forgiveness, they need mercy. The crooked spaces in our lives will make straight, right? All that's been broken in the fall. The high places, those who are arrogant, filled with self-exaltation, don't think they need God, don't think they need anything of his name, he's going to just humble them. He's going to bring them low, right? This salvation's going to happen. So he, here's what's amazing about this as you, as you see this, is this is all going to be called good news because no work, no law-keeping, no moralism, nothing you can do, religious or irreligious, can save you apart from Christ. That's why this is going to be so important for us to hear and for John to talk about. And the reason this is specifically shocking to a first century Jew is because predominantly the mindset was, I'm good because of my heritage, because I'm Jewish and I obey his law. That's predominantly the understanding. So, so this is sufficient for salvation, for redemption, for cleansing of my soul. And a lot of times the Jews would be baptized, rarely, but they'd be baptized more for purification and cleansing. Yet this is for literal internal transformation. That's what we're going to see later. He's going to say, hey, man, I'm baptizing you externally with water. Hey, Jesus comes. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit with fire. It's internal. I'm just doing external stuff. He's going to come internally and transform you. We're going to see that later as he preaches. So it's real important to understand that here John is explicitly preaching to proud, moralistic, well-behaved religious people of the day. Not necessarily the outwardly pagan doing all the outward, you know, major sins. Jesus will call them whitewashed tombs later. You're dead on the inside, but you look great on the outside. You read your Torah, you go to the synagogue every Saturday, you say your prayers. 
but we're going to see as John gets in, here he goes preaching one of the best seeker-sensitive sermons in the history of preaching. Verse 7, he says to the crowds who came out to be baptized, you brood of vipers. Great way to start. What if I started mine like that? You brood of vipers. I mean, really encouraging, loving, tender, right? He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down with an axe and thrown into the fire. Okay, so... John shows up to these very moral, religious, well-to-do. You know, well they got all their different religious activities set out. They're all clean on the outside. He says to them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That's rhetorical. Because these people knew that when the Messiah came, he was coming with blessing and with wrath. And, and here's what's ironic about what John's saying. John's saying, no, no, he's warning you to repent. Do you see that? See, because here's what they were saying. Oh, the people that need to repent are the wicked sinners. You know, the, the, the thieves, the adulterer, the liar. Yeah, they, no, but we're the religious. We don't need to repent of sin. So, so, so John is saying, hold on a second. No, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? God himself did. God himself warned you to turn to Christ and the mercy that's in Christ, the Messiah that would come to appease all right judgment that was due towards sinners. And so he's saying to these religious, moral, proud people, you're out here listening to me because God's telling you to repent. As you're looking around at everybody else going, man, where, yeah, you need to repent, you need to, no, no, you, you, you need to repent of your religion. That's interesting, right? We all think, oh, well, sinners need to repent of their sin. Yeah, well, there's a lot of people that need to repent of just being religious. And just, and just doing a lot of good things. And so this is why this is so important. This is why this message is just a catalyst towards the inauguration of Jesus' ministry is the religious and irreligious all need to repent of their sin. Like, like the gospel levels the playing field. Because it doesn't matter if you do everything good and you have no link to the saving work of Jesus, you're just a good person who's going to hell. Right, Just like the other person who might outwardly be displaying wicked acts. Well, that person is also damned to hell, but both are equally bad. Both need the saving knowledge of Jesus. Both need the cross of Christ. I always say, listen, we're all going to stand lacking before judgment no matter how good you lived your life if you do not have the righteousness of the Son of Jesus. And so here he's showing us that, man, it doesn't matter what side of the fence you are, and these people are all saying the people need to repent are the sinners, the drunkards, liars, thieves, adulterers. Me, I follow God's law. I go to the synagogue. I read the Torah. And John is just graciously saying, man, religion is anything attempting to merit the favor of God apart from Christ. Any work, any activity that you do, thinking that this is somehow working you up the ladder is wicked. You can't do it. You can't earn enough righteousness. I mean, that's why in Philippians 3, what did Paul call it? Paul was a Judaizer. Someone who understood the law, Pharisee. What did he say? It's just a pile of crap. My righteousness is from what? God alone. All that stuff that's not connected to a love and affections for him, just a pile of crap. All my righteous works. All my good deeds. Strong language. 
Paul said it, right? And so we're seeing here that this is really, really serious. And so John is out calling people to repent of their religious heart. And John knows they're all going to appeal to being a part of Abraham's family. Heritage saves you. Association saves you. That's why he says, oh, by the way, don't tell me that Abraham's your dad. Don't tell me Abraham's your father. And by the way, what's so important about Abraham? Was he a Jew or a Gentile? He was a Gentile. Saved out of a pagan nation by the grace of God, for the, for the grace of God to display his name. And what happens? Back in Genesis, Abraham is credited righteousness based on his faith and not his works. Based on the future work of Jesus. So he's saying, hold on, even Abraham was saved not by anything religious, anything moral, any external activity. He was saved solely by faith in God, in his goodness, in his promises of the future Jesus, and God gave him the righteousness of Christ. This is how it's always been done. God didn't bait and switch. It's always been faith alone, grace alone, in Christ alone. That's always the way salvation has always worked. So here he says, Abraham trusted in the coming Messiah by faith. You're not saved by birth. You're saved by rebirth. You're not saved by birth. You're saved by a regeneration, a rebirthing of your soul. It's not about family line. It's about Jesus. Now it's important we stop here just for a second because maybe some of you think that you're a Christian in this room because your family's a Christian. So you're going, yeah, man, I'm good because, man, my parents are saved. Yeah, they're Christians, so why don't I kind of by association graft it in? No. Have you repented of your sin? Have you understood that you have belittled the very name of God? Some of you are going, well, my spouse is a Christian, so that kind of makes me, no. Being one flesh doesn't take spiritual elements and all of a sudden give you the righteousness of God. Maybe some of you are going, yeah, but I tend cab. Right? I mean, I attend cab. I show up every week. I mean, attending cab doesn't make you a Christian. I mean, if you're here and you think that by you showing up here, that somehow miraculously gives you righteousness and forgiveness and right standing before God, you're missing it. I mean, I mean, people don't, Lord willing, I mean, the goal is not coming to church because you have to, because you're being made righteous, because you want to. I mean, listen, if you look around, talk to most people, they, they love being here because they love to worship him. They understand the grace and mercy of kindness they've been shown in the cross of Christ. So we come out of joy. We don't come begrudgingly because I have to. Because No, because we've been shown something crazy. So, so as you look at the church, that's the goal of the church. The church does not show up to the, the to fellowship of the people of God to say, hey, maybe God will like me more or love me more because I'm here. No, he's already done that alone in Jesus. Why are you a Christian? If you're a Christian, have you repented of sin? Or are you just by association thinking that somehow by line, by history, by lineage, by that somehow that makes you one? You'll find nothing in the scriptures that will say that. You'll actually find the opposite, which is what John the Baptist is getting at. Lineage doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. Family history doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. You associating doesn't save you. Repentance saves you. Powerful stuff from John. Jesus alone makes you right with God. And we, we know that when we all stand before God, what one of two responses? Either, I know you, you're mine, you're loved by me, right? Or, depart, I, I never knew you. I mean, who are you? Right? Because those are, the, those are the two things we will hear. One of those two things. 
And God knows who are his. And God offers Christ alone as the answer to our sickness of sin. And this is exactly what they're doing. I'm Jew by heritage, so God can't destroy me because of his promise to Abraham. So what I'll do is I'll do enough just to obey the external law, and I'm good. And that's why John says, hold on a second. You're not saved by that. Didn't you know that God can make one of these rocks a child of Abraham? One of these stones, those stones have no link to him, no lineage to him. And, and he says some weighty, weighty words. And so John is showing us that morality doesn't save us. It's repentance that saves us. Clearly these people don't have true repentance, which is why he says the axe is at the bottom of the tree. They'll chop you down and burn you. Oh. And he goes, and, 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 and don't appeal to lineage thinking that, well, he can't do that to me because I'm in this family line. Those stones, he can make them child of Abraham. Where are you at with me? Who are you trusting in? What has made you righteous? Where's your confidence? Naturally, the crowd starts to panic, right? They're hearing this kind of a new message. They're, they're wondering what's going on. Verse 10, look at what the crowd say. And the crowds ask him, what shall we do? That's a good question. <laughs> what do we do about this? I mean, I thought that that's how I was saved. What was just by being in this line and being a part of this heritage and and he answers them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors came to him asking the same thing, to be baptized. He says to them, teacher, what shall we do? And they say to him, collect no more and do what you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, don't extort your money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Okay, here's where the passage gets a bit odd. Okay? Because, because here is what... It seems like John has said up to this point. It seems like John has said up to this point, to be saved from the wrath of God towards sin, no morality, no law-keeping, no good works remove you from that. Like only Jesus can do that, trusting in the work of his son. And now it seems like he bait and switches and says, oh, by the way, here's a to-do list. And they say, what shall we do? How do we repent? And he says, oh, be a good person. Feed the poor. John's not giving a to-do list. What he's doing is revealing true and false repentance. True repentance bears fruit. If you truly throw yourself on the free grace and mercy of God in Christ, that will be made evidenced in the way you live. So he's saying to these people, it's impossible for you, if you have thrown yourself on the free, free grace of mercy in Christ, to look at the poor person, the oppressed person, and say, man, stinks for him, glad I'm not him. Right? There's no evidence of the Holy Spirit. There's no evidence of repentance there. He says if, if it's impossible for you to throw yourself on the free grace and mercy of Christ and use your power for self-exaltation. All that stuff is what? Self-righteousness. Which is what? What he's getting at. You being religious, you thinking that your good works make you righteous. So he's showing you, you should be doing th these things out of a heart that has been made new and changed by mercy and grace. So he's saying, this will be evidenced, but you're not living that way. These things are not saving them, they're not giving them some type of better favor with God. These are just evidence that they're bearing fruit, keeping with repentance. 
Listen, brothers and sisters, there's this crazy idea that all you do is trust Jesus, bow your knee to him, and then live however you want. And I've said repeatedly, that's impossible. That's, and no one makes you do that. If you're living in secret cyclical sin right now, immorality, whatever it is, lust, what, and you have no grief, and we're going to talk about the difference of worldly grief and godly grief, if there's nothing in you that, that knows you're grieving the heart of God, and you're not turning from that and living new, you're probably not a Christian. Because your repentance towards him is going to show and be demonstrated in your life. Right? So listen, don't walk around with a magnifying glass going, well, I mean, I thought he was a Christian, but he's like, well, he might not be. You repent of your sin and live accordingly. The Holy Spirit convicts our hearts and causes us to live differently. Right? I mean, we will naturally bear that fruit. You don't have to try. It's who you are. So the new nature is going to look like this. He goes, okay, well, if you've really repented and you're really not just religious, why don't you do these things? Let's see it in your life. I want to see you actually living in a way that matches the repentance you claim. But, of course, John does. There's false love for God. There's not real genuine love for God. There's not real genuine repentance from these people. So John is just further exposing their self-righteousness. And he says, if you really understood the free grace and mercy and you were repenting of your sin and turning away from your sin and turning towards Christ, you know what you would do? Your, your wealth, your possessions, your relationships, all of this would be for the good and glory of God and not for the good and glory of you. So examine your heart. Self-examination. You see that repeatedly in the scriptures. And you know what's interesting as I was reading this, I thought, this is, this is actually going to be a consistent barrier to the grace and mercy of God throughout Jesus' ministry. Stuff. You'll see it over and over. Because the person who has much usually doesn't realize that they lack much, spiritually speaking. Usually. So he's saying to these people, you've got to reorient how you live and what, how you see what you have because it's all his. And if you're truly repentant and saved, then it will bear fruit in the ways that you use your stuff, your relationships, your position. So a good question to ask this morning, just right in the middle of the sermon. (laughs) Are you playing church? Do you show up here because, man, this is just a great religious thing to do? It's just a waste of time. I say it all the time. This is such a bad hobby. Seriously, I say it all the time. What a boring hobby. I mean, if, if, you, if that's how you're doing it, like if there, there's no love and zeal and passion for the things of God and, or just, I mean, listen, if you're seeking, wanting to know, praise God. I'm talking to the Christian or the one who thinks he's a Christian. If you're just showing up because, man, there are a lot of other things you should do with your time. Who wants to get up early? Well, not really early, but you all show up late. So this is early still, right? I got it. So, so, here, so here's the, no. so, so here, but here's the thing, right? So, so if you've got that, if, you, if, if you're in here and you're going, man, this is just, man, this is just great. I just kind of show up because, man, I like to just listen to some guy talk for like 30, 40 minutes, 50 minutes, an hour. And then, you know, I like to sing some songs and I don't kind of see people. And then I leave and feel a little bit better about myself. You realize you are wasting your time. You're not getting any more righteous. God's not looking at you any more favorably. Did you know that? It's just another hobby you've added to hiking and skydiving and riding your bike and running. And How lame. How lame. This is not a hobby. This is not a cute thing that we do, right? 
This is real. Eternal things are at stake. We're going to see John say, I mean, unquenchable fire is at stake. So, so how do we even view this? Are you just playing church or there's evidence of repentance in your life? Um, do you come in and just give God lip service? You know you've lived like hell all week. So you come in and just, yeah, I love you. I want to praise you. I... You know what's so terrible? Some of you right now, as I'm talking about that, are thinking other people and not you. You're going, yeah, 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 him, her. You know what that is? Just you being a religious repenter. You repent for everyone else's sin and you never look at yourself. No, no. He's talking to you. God's talking to me. Don't look around. Don't No, you. Where's your heart this morning? Are you living a repentant life? Are you grieved over your sin because it belittles his name, not because it sears your conscience? Why are you grieved over your sin? This is what John's getting at. Because he's saying salvation comes for the person who, who gets that. that. That this is real, this is weighty, that sin is not just about me feeling better about my conscience. It's about literally new life. It's about belittling a holy God. It's about where I stand in light of him. And John is laying this out. Another good question is, do you look down on everyone else in the ways that they seem to be lacking without seeing your own imperfections in light of a holy, righteous God? What's the posture of your heart when you walk in? Really religious? Really seeing everybody else? Man, yeah. yeah he's really not that loving. He's not saying hi to anybody. He's, yeah, he always comes in, leaves. What a jerk. Or is it, wow, I'm sitting by myself. I'd probably say hi to anybody. I, I lack love. I'd. I kind of like my clique and my corner and my people. And Look at you. Just for, just for good measure, I have to ask myself these things all the time as a pastor. What's your posture, your heart coming in? Why are you sharing these things to the flock? Convicting, right? So the people are mulling over these weighty truths. And John's going to pull back the veil a little bit more. In verse 15, and the people were in expectation and were questioning in their hearts. Now they're starting to really wonder, is John the Messiah? These things he's saying. They're questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming with the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So everyone's going, wait, is he, is he the one who's going to fix all our problems? Is this the Savior? This bug-eating man from the woods, Right? I mean, is this the guy, is this, is this who we've been longing and waiting for? Is, is he the Christ? And what does John say? And I think this is incredible because John is such a good model. Humble man, faithful man. He could have said, yeah, it's me. I mean, that, that must have felt really good. Right? I mean, he's just your, your just average Joe, not doing a whole lot. All of a sudden, man, the place lights up with fame for this guy. Everyone's coming out. Everyone's listening. And what does he say? No, 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 no. It's not me. Oh, you have no idea. The one who's coming after me, the Messiah, oh my goodness, I can't even, I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals or 
untie his sandals. That was, that was the lowest of the low, like, like slave level where people would get down and they would untie their, servant, their, their master's shoes and they'd come in the house. Dirty feet. Just everyone would walk around with open-toed sandals, just dirt, scum all over them. And the, the person would bend down and just start untying their sandals. Just, just low. He's going, I'm not even worthy to take off his shoes. I'm not even worthy to be a low slave. Like the chasm between me and the one coming is infinite. <laughs> if you think we're similar or the same, or you're crazy. And he goes, and by the way, this one coming after me, you know I'm just baptizing you with water externally. You know what he's going to do? He's going to do internal transformation. He's going to baptize you internally with the Holy Spirit, with, with fire. He's going to create real change. Powerful, powerful stuff. And then John brings the showstopper in this text. And this true Messiah, he's coming back, not just as, he's coming, not just as justifier, but as the judge. So not only, this is where the winnowing fork, wheat and chaff, he's not only coming to make you righteous, to give you salvation, to offer forgiveness to those who repent of their sin and see the free grace and mercy of God. He's, he's going to welcome them into a new fold and a new family, this barn, this analogy he uses because they live in an agrarian society where they understood working in barns and wheat and chaff and they knew that when the person came in, took a winnowing fork and threw up the wheat, they knew the, the wheat would fall to the ground and the chaff, the little seeds would be blown away in the wind. Okay, so he's giving them a visual that they would understand here. And he goes, man, when this Jesus comes, he's not only going to welcome those who repent of their sin, he's also going to cast out those and judge those rightly who don't throw themselves on his mercy alone for forgiveness. He says, so one will be like this wheat and one will be like this chaff. So those who repent of their sin, turn away from sin, turn towards Christ, they're like the wheat who he gathers as his own who he gives his righteousness to, who he will gift his Holy Spirit to. The chaff, whether it's deceit, temptation, false teaching, blown away. Oh yeah, I'd rather follow that. Chaff with those little, little kernels in the wheat, just the slightest, whew, just blow it away. That's why you see an analogy in Psalm 1. They're not like the chaff who get blown away. See, the person who hears the word of God is like a rooted tree. The other one's just like, just go to the slightest bit of thing comes in your life, you're shipwrecked. You're, oh, I'm going to follow that. That's, that's a better God, right? The true repentant believer stays as wheat and continues on in loving God, continues to repent of his sin. And, and here he shows the differences in what happens is one will be brought in and saved from the wrath to come, and the person who refuses to repent will suffer conscious, eternal torment apart from God in the fires of hell. And here's why this matters so much. Is because so many people think that by attending a church gathering that they're wheat. And maybe some of them are you. Where you come and you're really chaff. You don't want the things of God. You don't love the things of God. You're not grieved over your sin. Otherwise, you'd change. Otherwise, you'd, you'd, you'd pursue him. I'm not talking about ups and downs. I'm not talking about, I mean, no believer's perfect. 
Everyone struggles with sin. I'm talking about the heart's affection of continuing to repent of that sin. And so many people, that's why this matters so much, is think that because they show up on Sunday, they're brought into the barn. Why? Because I showed up. I showed up. I'm doing God a favor. Man, God, don't you see all my good works? Man, I go to church at least once a month. I gather, you know what, I even do a community group. Do that too. You know what, I've cracked open my Bible once in like the last year. I've done it. Hey, I, I saw someone who was poor in New York City. And I gave him some money. You're trying to rack it up the scale. Do you not see that religious or irreligious, you're left lacking? Doesn't matter. With an unchanged heart, doesn't matter. What does that make you? A morally good person? Not a transformed person? Not a redeemed person? Not a saved person? This is amazing that he's, he's laying this before them. And so Jesus' message, and I'm telling you, this is one of Satan's greatest lies. I'm telling you. He wants you to think that just keep doing what you're doing, living the lukewarm, just coasting through life, no affections for God, no concern of your sin, just keep doing the Christian thing. Just keep looking the part. Keep doing it. I'm telling you, you're going to be the one he's going to look at and say, I don't, I don't know you. So repent this morning. Turn to Christ. Run to him. He's going, I'm, I'm offering free grace and mercy. I mean, it's, it's, it's welcome to you. You don't have to be the chaff. You can be the wheat. And here's the thing, because the issue that we have of this idea of eternal hell and eternal suffering, and most of us say, well, that's an issue with God's love. So God couldn't possibly be loving if that exists. No, your issue's not with the love of God. You realize your issue's with not understanding the weight and gravity of how holy and glorious he is. Like if you understood the weight of his holiness, the measure of his glory, just how the Bible says your eyes can't even open and look for a millisecond at him without being incinerated. So if you start understanding him and what he's really like and what his character really is by looking at the scriptures and staring at his word and learning more about that, I'm telling you that'll warm your soul to sing while he is loving to spare any. Because everyone deserves that right judgment in light of how he is, in light of how damning our sin is. I'm telling you, Satan loves to say, it's just not that bad. You're just not that wicked. You're, intrinsically, you're not that broken. I'm telling you, I am. You are. That's why this is good news. That's why this is good news. There's mercy for you. There's grace for you. Turn to Christ. <laughs> Throw yourself upon his free grace and mercy. Amazing message that he's giving here. We're saved solely by the purchasing work and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So look at how this ends. This is really important, verse 18. So with many exhortations, he preached the good news, the good news to people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and the voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So as John is preaching repentance, he even goes after Herod, prominent leader at the time. And what does Herod do? Herod starts sleeping with his brother's wife, has an illicit, adulterous, incestuous relationship with his brother's wife, does a lot of other things. What happens? They don't like that. They don't like that John's calling them out on their sin, right? This is, man, when all of a sudden you start telling other people 
that they need a savior, well, now you got an issue. It's cool if you're a sinner, right? And if Jesus is your savior, but as soon as you start saying that to someone else, all of a sudden you're wicked and you're a bigot, right? I mean, so here John is like, hey, hey, this isn't right. Throw yourself for the free mercy of God. This isn't, this isn't good. Repent of your sin. What do they do? Well, let's just shut him up and cut his head off. So they behead John because they don't like it. John's so courageous and faithful that he would even go claiming good news to those who don't see it and don't recognize it, saying there's time to turn to Jesus. And they had a hard heart that said, I don't want it. I don't want to repent of my sin. And so the only way to shut him up was to behead him. What a, what a man, what a model. Courageous, faithful, loved people enough to be honest. And then I love it, Luke then points her eyes to Jesus, who is our better John. Right, so he shows John's life, and now he moves on and shows Jesus who leads the way by example by being baptized. And we know if you read other gospel accounts that, that John actually baptized Jesus. And can you imagine, I mean, him welcoming everyone, baptizing, ba- whoa, 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 wait a second. I can't baptize you. Are you, ki- are you kidding me? Yeah, I'm baptizing everyone who needs to be baptized. You don't, Jesus wasn't baptized because he was sinful. He wasn't baptized because he needed a cleansing from sin. He was being baptized to foreshadow and demonstrate that the future death, burial, and resurrection of himself would enable repentance to have true salvation. The irony is beautiful. And he's just displaying that that this is what's going to happen for those who turn and repent to me. They're going to be buried with me and raised in newness of life. And we see a beautiful Trinitarian expression of God. The Father's there, the Holy Spirit and Jesus. And this beautiful act of baptism. Because, see, baptism is ultimately always about Jesus. It's not about God loving you more. Or Baptism is to demonstrate your identification with him as your new master and Lord. That when we turn to repent with him, he, he owns us, right? We're bought by his blood. So if you've never been baptized, you should be baptized. Jesus said, this is how you identify with me publicly. We're going to have a baptism in the fall. We're thrilled at all those who are, have already said they're going to be baptized, and we pray you might too. If you're in Christ and have never done that. It's this amazing, amazing thing that we see. And I love that John calls all of this good news. See, and I love that he inserts Herod. Because Herod's the really irreligious guy. Just outwardly living like a wicked pagan, right? I'm going to sleep with my brother's wife. I'm going to do all these bad things. And what John's doing is showing you it doesn't matter if you're religious or irreligious. It's that good news, there are bad spaces on both sides of those fences. Because here's what religion does. Religion makes you arrogant or fall into despair, right? Because either you obey all the rules, do all the things God wants, now you're just puffed up, arrogant, and proud, or you miss all the marks, you don't follow any of the rules, now you're just in despair, discouragement, because you can't add up enough to God, right? So Jesus comes along and says, hey, I'm going to solve both of those. Whether you're a super religious guy or an irreligious guy, hey, I'm going to meet both of those needs in the cross of Christ. It gives you the only righteousness and debt of forgiveness that can be given. What good news. And that's why John's going, man, this is good news I'm preaching. Doesn't matter who you are. I'm going to talk to the religious people. I'm going to talk to the irreligious people. Hey, this is good, great news for those who see their need for mercy. And I want you to connect verse 18 with verse 22. The first verse there with the last verse. The good news is fundamentally that Jesus, who God is well pleased with, 
He looks at him when he comes up out of the water and says, man, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. That is what he says to those who realize this good news and who repent of their sin. He says, I'm pleased with you. Not because you do anything good, but because he sees you as the righteousness of his son who he's pleased with. Right? Why is he pleased with Jesus ultimately? Because he goes to the cross, submits to his will, dies the death, lives the life, rises again. And he says, hey, whoever trusts in that, man, that's who I'm going to be looking at as why I'm pleasing towards you. It's that idea of imputed righteousness. We've talked about this the last number of weeks. That he forgives you of sin and then gifts you his righteousness. So he sees you as the righteousness of his son. And he says, I'm, I'm pleased with you. Why? Not fundamentally because you do good stuff because you're really religious, but because you've identified and surrendered graciously, joyfully, gladly to his lordship, who is Jesus Christ. We call this substitutionary atonement, where he's your substitute. It's an important doctrine to get in the Christian faith. He literally takes your place, takes on your sin, becomes your sin for you, does not act in sin, takes on your sin, becomes that sin, takes it to the grave, rises, and then says, here, I'm going to credit my perfect life to you on your account. Mind-blowing. What grace, what mercy. You're not going to find it anywhere else. I've said this repeatedly. No other belief system or teaching has a substitute that, that goes for you in your place. Every other system that exists in some way or another is you obtaining or doing something to earn the merit and favor and love. And he goes, you don't have to. I've done it for you. Look at my perfect life. I offer it to credit it on your behalf. And John makes something really important we can't miss. Repentance is the key. So I want to end here. Land the plane. Because there are a lot of false understandings of repentance. I'm going to say it again. Repentance is not you feeling bad about your sin. It's not, oh, he's crying, so he's repenting. No, that's just remorse. That's just feeling bad. That's just grieving that you did something that was wrong and hurtful. Because repentance is birthed out of an understanding that when we sin, we're making light of the God of the universe. When I sin, I'm actively belittling his name. When I sin, I am choosing lesser things over his greatness and glory. Okay, so... Because of his infinite perfections, there's nothing I could possibly do, even with the motivations of my heart, that would ever be right. So repentance is going, okay, I, I see that as sin. I acknowledge it as sin. I humble myself. I turn from that sin. I turn to Christ who is my righteousness, who bared the weight of my sin for me, who paid the debt for me. I love him. And I'm going to keep doing that, right? And here's how I know this is true. 2 Corinthians 7.10. Great verse to know, to memorize. We'll end here. This is what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians. Godly grief, also godly sorrow, depends on your translation. Godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly sorrow produces death. So Paul makes an important distinction here. For those who know the scriptures, right, okay, worldly sorrow is simply this, okay? Because the unbeliever can feel bad about stuff, right? So, so worldly sorrow is, man, I've made a mess of my life. I just want to fix it. Okay? That's worldly sorrow. That's not true repentance. 
He says, man, repentant heart, the true godly repentance is where you realize you've offended him. So it's not about you just offending people. Like that's not the issue. The issue is you've offended him. The issue is that he's holy and you're not. It's not that I need all my relationships to be made right. I want people to look at me more favorably or I just feel really bad. I want to feel better my self-esteem and I just want to be built up a little bit more. That's, that's not what it's about at all. Make godly sorrow, godly remorse, godly repentance goes, man, first and foremost, I have offended the God of the universe and I desperately need him to give me mercy and give me forgiveness. I need that. I want that. I love that. So shower me with the cross. And run back there. And, and here is why this is so important to understand. Is that many of you may, maybe have been wrongly taught that repentance is a one-time act where you're saved and you live the rest of your life however you want. No, no, no. In the scriptures, repentance is an ongoing lifestyle of the Christian. I mean, what's the call of the Christian and the, un- and the non-Christian? Repent and believe. You're not getting resaved. <laughs> that happens at a moment. God justifies you, makes you right when you truly lean into Christ, trust him alone for the forgiveness of your sin. But a person who is truly regenerated will then live a life of repentance. So Martin Luther said it best. He said, all of the Christian's life is repentance. So what does this mean? I repent daily. Your pastor. I mean, daily I'm pleading for God. And I'm thanking God for showing me mercy because I've belittled his name today. Oh, I've chosen lesser things. Oh, I've loved his stuff over him. I've abused his gifts. I haven't loved the giver. Daily. So, so the Christian will continually repent of his sin. So if you're in a season of life or you've been in a long time of life where there's like no repentance in you, and you thought that, man, I just had to say a prayer or say some words, it was kind of like a chant, and then I could just live however I want, well, that's not salvation. Just read 1 John. 1 John will tell you the Christian continues a life of repentance because that's who he is. He bears fruit in keeping with repentance. So may God reveal what he wants to reveal to you this morning in his grace. He's saying to all of us, Christian and the non, repent. Some of you just need to repent not in the salvific way, but repent for the ways that you belittled him this week. And you've dishonored his name and you've loved other things and worshipped other gods. And Some of you need to repent in the salvific way, in the salvation sense. You've never turned to Christ. You've never acknowledged that he's holy and you're not. You thought for the whole of your life that religion and just doing good things and working up the ladder, that God's a God who wants us to ascend to him, to be made righteous. No, he's a God who descended to you, lived your life for you, paid the debt for you, Offers righteousness for you. Others of you are in a third camp. You need to really do a good self-examination. You think you're a Christian. Claim to be a Christian. Nothing in your life shows it. I'm not talking about you showing up here. I'm talking about how you live when you leave these doors and come back next Sunday. Right? And you know who you are. You've got the secret, deep, cyclical sin that you love you never repent of it you keep doing it there's no change come to Christ turn to him there's free mercy I mean first John will say man sin loves to be in the dark 
Loves to hide in the shadows. Loves to lie to you and say, hey, just keep doing it. Just keep enjoying it. It won't lead to damnation. It won't lead to destruction. It won't destroy your marriage. Just keep clicking on the website. Just keep flirting with that girl. Right, right? Just, 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 it's not that big of a deal, right? The Bible says, unquenchable fire. But the judgment for sin is that. So, so turn to Christ. The axe is at the tree. He, he can cut it down. But he's saying there's time. There's time. And, and, and just because we land on Father's Day, let me just encourage some of you dads. Maybe you're in this room and you're going, man, I, I never heard a dad ever say, that I love you, I'm pleased with you, you're mine. Maybe, maybe your history is just awful, horrific memories. If you're in Christ, you know what he says to you? What he said to his son. He says, you're mine, I'm pleased, I love you. He's a father to the fatherless. Enjoy that this morning. Bask in that this morning. That he says that because of what Jesus did. He looks at you and says, I love you. You're mine. No one will take you out of my family. No one will abuse you. No one will separate you from my love. I'm for you to the infinite end of ages, which is never. So as we close, two questions as we pray. Are you wheat or chaff? Ask the Lord. Do you live a life of repentance or not? It's not a hard question. <laughs> don't overcomplicate it. <laughs> I always tell people, no, it's, you do or you don't. And let me, let me say this. The good news of the Bible is not that God threatens you. Okay? God is not a, one who just threatens you to accept him. <laughs> you know he's actually for your joy? You know he's actually for your, your deepest found life here? He, he actually, did you know he actually made the universe to work the right way? Did you know that he actually is the one who made sex? That he actually loves it? In the sense of he gave it as a gift? Hey, just, if you operate in it the way, I, there, there'll be deeper joy and deeper life. And if you abuse it, well, you're going to see the repercussions of it? That he, he made relationships and marriage, and if you operate in those the way they're intended, did you know that actually is for your joy? I mean, can you imagine if Chris and I got married, and I'm like, all right, yeah, I'll just put up with you and deal with you and we're in a covenant, we're in a relationship, you know. And no. Man, we, we delight in one another. That I'm for her joy, she's for my joy. That God disciplines those who he loves. God is not someone who is threatening you with hell. Hell exists because sin's that serious. He's actually graciously calling to you saying, hey, I'm, I'm actually for you. Turn in this morning. Let's ask God to, to help us. Lord, we thank you that I know this was some weighty words from you through Luke, through John. Ultimately, as your Holy Spirit has directed. God, I know that I can't change anyone's heart. I know no one in this room can change anyone's heart but the Holy Spirit. So God, we ask you to be kind to souls this morning. That God, you'd rescue many from sin. Like had some in the sense of, for the first time, no longer being a creation of God, but a child of God. That you would welcome some into the family, that they would repent of their sin and turn from it. And turn to Christ and trust Him. Trust His sufficient life, death, burial, and resurrection on their behalf. 
that nothing but the blood of Jesus can atone. That Christ alone is the one we stand on. You paid every bit of necessary requirement of the right wrath that was towards us in our sin. God, may we have a more accurate picture of you. May we understand your character and nature. Father, I, I pray that if there are those in this room who are just living a double life, oh God, would you have them confess that to someone? Would you reveal that in their heart? Would they find freedom and joy in just laying before you the honesty and transparency? God, that we're not here to judge, we're here to throw grace at them, (laughs) throw mercy at them. For God, even Paul, one of the most wicked men we can see in the scriptures at one point said, I'm the chief of sinners, and yet he was shown grace and mercy in Christ. As a demonstration, as David said in Psalm 51, against you only have I sinned. That's the issue. May you meet us with sweet grace and mercy this morning, God. And those who are in Christ, may they enjoy the righteousness that you give today. That as we stumble and fall, may we enjoy your gospel. Enjoy your perfection on our behalf. Enjoy your life lived on our behalf. And God, as we observe the Lord's Supper, God, may we appreciate it and celebrate it gladly because it's good news that your body was broken, your blood was shed for us. For the salvation that all flesh may see salvation, as John said. In Jesus' name, amen.